Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Sam Shaheen, a senior editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, I'm talking to Doug Workman about avalanche airbags and the increasingly large role they are playing in our safety in the mountains. Doug is the North American safety rep for Mammut, an ex-ski patroller at Jackson Hole, and a current mountain guide. He has more experience than almost anyone in the mountains and has some interesting takes on avalanche airbags and life in the mountains in general. I think you guys and girls will enjoy this conversation. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by Bentgate, our blister-recommended shop in Golden, Colorado. A number of our reviewers and friends of ours have been going to Bentgate for years, so this is a shop we know very well and highly recommend. For over 20 years, Bentgate has been the core climbing and ski shop for Denver and the Golden Area, and their passion and commitment to these sports is real. Bentgate staff is knowledgeable. They use the gear they sell, and they strive to offer outstanding customer service. Everybody these days likes to talk about community, but Bentgate is and always has been a community-oriented shop. So if you need climbing beta, info on conditions for ski touring, or you're looking for a guide, stop into the shop or give them a call. Bentgate staff for all avid climbers and skiers who will be happy to help you out. Another thing that sets Bentgate apart is their massive demo fleet. Bentgate provides demos for just about every ski and board they sell, and you can also demo touring boots and climbing skins. Whether you connect with Bentgate in the shop or online at bentgate.com, we're extremely confident that you are going to have a great experience. Now, let's get to my conversation with Doug Workman. Hello, everyone. I'm Sam Shaheen, senior editor with Blister, and I'm here talking with Doug Workman, uh, who works with Mammut Safety and is also a mountain guide based in Jackson Hole. Is that correct, Doug? That is correct. Yep. Cool. So, and are you in Jackson right now? I am. Yep. How are things in Jackson today? They're great. It's a bit of a rainy spring, which is good for people that like to ski up high in the peaks, but uh, slow time in Jackson, good time to rest up before the next season begins. Cool. So yeah, let's start by getting a bit of a background about you. So you're the North American representative for Mammut Safety, a former ski patroller and a current mountain guide. Can you talk a bit about how you got started in the mountains and your career up to this point? I guess how I got started in the mountains goes all the way back to growing up uh, in a family of skiers back east in Connecticut and then followed by brother's footsteps moving out west in 91. I moved out to Colorado and I had uh, already learned to climb back there with my brother and just kind of continued doing that through college in Colorado and that ended up being my primary focus for, for a long time. Ended up wandering up to Jackson and settling here soon after school in the late 90s. And I started guiding soon after that. There were uh, some friends of mine from, from school in Colorado that had begun working for Jackson Mountain Guides up here. And uh, in 2001, I got hired to start guiding Grand Teton Ascents in, uh, here in the Tetons. Cool. And you've been with uh, Jackson Hole Mountain Guides ever since then? Yeah, I've continued to work for Jacksonville Mountain Guides ever since 2000. Cool. Cool, yeah. So, um, and the idea of this conversation is to talk about your perspective on avalanche airbags, both from your perspective working with Mammut, who's obviously one of the, the leaders in avalanche airbag design, but also your perspective um, from the guided side. So um, I think kind of to start off, 
I mean, you've, you've led trips and expeditions all around the world as a guide. Um, how has the advent of avalanche airbags changed the ways that you approach these sort of ski objectives in the Alpine? Well, the goal, of course, is that it doesn't affect your approach to the objective at all. And, uh, I th- you know, I think everybody, for the most part, at least in the professional community, is aware of the concept of risk homeostasis theory, which states that uh, everybody has kind of their own acceptable level of risk. And if they're below that level of risk, they're bored and will therefore increase their risk. And if they're beyond their acceptable level of risk, they're scared and they'll back off. But that regardless of safety equipment, individuals want to be in whatever their acceptable level of risk tends to be. So there's always the risk with safety equipment that we just increase our risk to meet our tolerance, you know, and that's all theoretical in the end. I think for myself, I would prefer to have whatever safety equipment is available and then do my best to mitigate whatever psychological impact I could have on there. Interesting. So, so this concept of risk homeostasis is, is kind of fascinating, but I guess in your, in your experience, have you seen different safety technologies change people's acceptable level of risk, whether that's like the introduction of helmets um, or avalanche beacons or now avalanche airbags? I don't really feel like I can personally point to any anecdote or experience that I've had where I felt like a helmet or an airbag or anything else really affected my decision making or, or or any time where I literally saw that affect somebody else's decision making. And, and I've certainly heard people comment, you know, like there was a Canadian guide who commented that before we wore helmets, nobody hit trees and now everybody's hitting trees. I don't really feel like I have any kind of experience like that, that I could point to that's, that, that demonstrates this concept that we increase our risk uh, when we have more safety equipment. Yeah. I mean, if, if the idea in risk homeostasis is when you exceed your level of risk, you get scared and fear, fear is a very like biological response that doesn't really respond well to reason. So like having these safety features is much more of a, of, of, of a reason, a reason-based argument, right? So perhaps, perhaps that's, that's some of the issue. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's some validity to the the idea that it, it makes sense for us all to try to incorporate whatever safety equipment we're using on a very regular basis. Um, they say that some of the things that, that lead to risk homeostasis uh, – to, or, or that concept really playing out in that manner that we're talking about. You know, one of the things they say is that if, if the, the more often you're reminded that you have that safety equipment, the more then the more likely it is that that safety equipment could negatively affect our decision making. So on that note, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think if you're if you're going to choose to use an airbag, it's probably best to use it every day. And if you're going to choose to wear an airbag, it's probably best to make sure the handle or the trigger mechanism is out every single day so that it is becomes a much more standard part of your kit where you're not 
reminding yourself every run or every day, oh, I'll take the handle out now. And, and you know, the theory at least shows that that's when it's more likely to encourage you to into riskier behavior because you've been reminded, oh, I'm now adding this additional safety measure. Right. So, so in other words, to normalize the airbag as part of your safety kit rather than to periodically augment your safety kit with the airbag when you feel you need it. Exactly. I mean, sometimes you hear people, you know, like a, a, any, you know, someone say, oh, well, I, I don't need my airbag on this run or I don't need the trigger out or I'm only going to use my airbag on high hazard days or something like that. It's like, I think because it's still relatively new technology and most people out there that are backcountry skiing probably were backcountry skiing before they ever used an airbag. So for that generation, there's going to be this kind of period of adaptation. But if you looked at it in terms of like any other basic piece of safety equipment, those types of mental judgment scenarios would probably appear to be pretty silly. I mean, if somebody, if a partner told you, I only wear my beacon on high hazard days, <laughs> you would think that person was, you know, something was wrong with them. Um, but yet if somebody says that with an airbag, you probably think, oh, well, that's maybe that's reasonable. I don't know. Yeah, that that is kind of interesting. I, I mean, do you... Because the, the, I mean, the way that I personally use my airbag is pretty much every day midwinter. And then on, for the majority of my ski mountaineering objectives, where these are like bigger days, um, where, you know, the hazards are very different, I tend to use, you know, a, a more stripped down lightweight pack. Is, is, is that something that, that you, that you would say is reasonable? I'm not going to tell anybody what's reasonable in terms of their, their safety equipment, you know, but, but that does tend to fall in line with what I currently am doing. But I also know that I'm very much in that generation of that is still adapting to a new piece of safety equipment. And I do think it just takes time. Um, there, you know, there was a long, there was a long period of time where I wouldn't, my, my, my feeling was, Oh, I'll use my airbag if it's gravity fed. If it's a, if it's a backcountry lap, that's accessed from a tram or a helicopter. But if I'm having a ski tour, I'm not going to wear it. And then I finally got to the point where I realized, well, that's pretty silly. I've, you know, I own, a lot of different airbags and have a lot of different airbags at my disposal. And it seems pretty silly to be standing on top of a run in the park where I could have an airbag on. So then, you know, I finally adapted it into my kit for touring. And, and now similar to what you're saying, by the time we're entering into a spring snowpack, I'm, I'm probably not wearing my uh, airbag, assuming I know and have confidence in that, in that snowpack. But I do think, you know, the, 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 just going back to what we were saying, that there's a lot to be said for, the, for that normalization. I mean, nobody, you, you never get in a car and say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put my seatbelt on today because the roads are slick. <laughs> yeah, it sounds ridiculous. You, it sounds ridiculous. You just put your seatbelt on. So, and I think that, that you know, to the, you know to, the, to, the, to the critics of airbags that point to risk homeostasis, it's like, I think we all need to be aware of the concept of risk homeostasis and, and be aware that one of the simplest ways to mitigate the risk of that is, is the normalization of the gear, you know, make it invisible. It's just part of your everyday scene. And then I think in the end, you know, you just, you, you look at automobile safety and it's like in the end, even though safety equipment probably never makes us as safe as we think it might partly maybe because of the concepts of risk homeostasis. In the end, nonetheless, if you look at 
automobile safety over the last 50 years, automobiles are a lot safer, period. Uh, so it might not be in lockstep with the technology, and there might be some hiccups along the way as people adapt, adopt new technology. But I, I think in the end, airbags do make us all safer. So before we started recording, you mentioned that you were in an avalanche accident involving an airbag. Do you, uh, do you mind telling that story? Uh, no, I don't mind. Um, in 2008, 2009 in Jackson was a, a fairly dramatic two years of deep slab instability. Uh, and while deep slab instability is not unusual in the Tetons, uh, I also think that maybe the professional community is less used to dealing with deep slab instability uh, as compared to maybe you know, a patrol based in a more continental snowpack like Colorado. But I guess that's a, that's a different topic, but it might be a whole nother podcast. (laughs) It's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So 2008, 2009, that was, I guess, a pretty dramatic cycle or time period in my world. And I was working for uh, part-time for Jackson Hole Ski Patrol. And back then, they had a category of ski patrolmen called auxiliaries and they were just uh, brought in to do avalanche control work as opposed to -to day-to-day workers. And so that's, was one of my roles. And in 2000, the 2009, 2010 season, a ski patroller named Big Wally was caught in an avalanche while doing control work. Um, And he was swept over a, a cliff and died. And at the time, you know, it was just around, it was just when uh, Americans at least were starting to have a little more exposure to the airbag technology, even though it was still fairly uh, difficult to even get an airbag in the U.S. Um, I think at the time, ABS and Snow Pulse were the only two airbags being distributed in the U.S. And even then, not really widespread after that accident, I think uh, I think if I have it right, preemptively, the Jackson Hole Ski Patrol started using airbags that next year. Uh, but a friend of mine and and uh, somebody I knew as uh, originally as a as a as a client that I skied with in Alaska and and, and Jackson and some other places, uh, he spoke with me after Big Wally's death, and he knew that I was. Uh, rattled by it and a couple days later on my doorstep was a uh, snow pulse avalanche airbag uh, and this guy tim had just gifted me him and him and tim and tom had gotten together and they gifted me this airbag uh, and at the time just like i think most people who had done all this work before without that technology it was hard not to focus on the drawbacks, you know, they seemed heavy. Uh, you know, I guess that's mostly it. It just seemed heavy. And I worked a couple days. I also work as a guide for high mountain heli skiing locally. And, and I was working there. And I, after this pack arrived, I, I worked a couple days without using it. And obviously it felt kind of silly. I was like, what, why wouldn't I be using it? And I uh, started using it. And, and four days later I was 
caught in an avalanche while working there, uh, heli ski guiding. And uh, it definitely feel like that airbag saved my life. So the, the timing of it all was pretty dramatic. Wow, that sounds like a <laughs> quite the uh, quite the infomercial for the airbag, I guess. Right. Yeah, I'm pretty certain that that that, that I that I wouldn't have survived that one without the the airbag. Wow, that's powerful. Do you look at airbag technology different from a guiding perspective versus a personal perspective? I think a different way of phrasing that question could be, do you think airbag technology has been more disruptive in the guiding world or to the general backcountry skiing public? I don't know that there's really much of a differentiation. I mean, um, I, I think that the adoption of airbags from the professional community has dramatically affected how quickly they were adopted by the uh, general population. I mean, at least here in Jackson, like going again, this is going back to the event with Big Wally. His his, his death caused the ski patrol and all all and any uh, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort employees that are in avalanche terrain, uh, whether it's out of bounds or on avalanche hazard reduction work. Those people are all required to wear airbags. So, you know that that happened fairly quickly, and I would say the you know, maybe you still have somebody once once in a while complaining about how heavy they are and if it's affecting their, their back or something. But I mean, generally speaking, that, that adoption happened really quickly. And then as a result, the adoption in the greater ski community in Jackson happened really quickly. And now if you look on the tram dock in Jackson, uh, it's it's amazing how many people are wearing airbags. So I'm not sure I really see one being more disrupted than the other. And I'm not sure also if it is, has been as dramatic you know, or it's, it's, as fast an adoption of that technology in other places as it has here because, of that, because that event was so crushing to the community. Sure, sure. And it seems like in Jackson, it kind of you know, was a little bit of a trickle down where the professionals started to use it and then um, that sort of trickled down to the general users. And also prices coming down probably helps with that as well. But. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely the perfect storm in terms of timing and and companies being called, you know, all, you know, multiple companies already kind of being, uh, you know, increasing their investment into that piece of technology and uh, availability within the U.S. dramatically changing right around that time, and so all of those things kind of just came together at the same time, I think. So there are two main technology systems used in modern airbags obviously memut is a leader in the kind of the canister style of systems but can you talk to the pros and cons a little bit about both canister style and fan base systems generally speaking i think that the way that that memut looks at it and the way that i currently look at it is that the gas systems are very reliable and time tested and simple they tend to be some of the lightest uh, units of their size on the market and the gas systems are less expensive. So uh, every once in a while, someone will say to me, well, when is Mammut going to start building an electronic system? And, and uh, to the best of my knowledge right now, Mammut doesn't really have that much interest in it. 
because they feel like what they have is uh, arguably the most reliable, the lightest, and the somewhat one of the uh, less expensive systems out there. So um, there are certainly some advantages to electronic systems, and I think the technology is is very cool. Um, I'm just you know for me, I'm just not sure if it's if it's there yet or if it balances out with the advantage of of travel, which is essentially the in my mind the main advantage what what would you say to people who because you know i've i've heard this argument several times the idea of there's like a barrier to pulling the handle when you have the canister right because you have one canister a day basically you can go back into town and refill it for you know some nominal amount of money but um if you have a electronic system you can pull your airbag multiple times a day and it kind of eliminates that that you know hesitation well, it's it's you know it's certainly an advantage of the electronic system being able to, being able to pull it every you know ten times a day or however many times you can, you can pull it. You know, I, 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 when it, when it comes to a, a real assessment of, of the of the pros and cons of the different technologies, I you know I I do my best to take the Mammut hat off because uh, while I believe in the Mammut products, I, you know I don't want to be blinded by advantages of other systems. I just, uh, I personally don't think that that, um, that being able to pull it multiple times is a significant advantage compared to the reliability of, of gas. Um, you know, I, I always laugh because, you know, my, my iPhone crashes from time to time and I'm pretty sure they have a lot more electrical engineers working on the iPhone than, than they do on a, <laughs> on a battery packed airbag. Uh, and, and there have been incidents over the last several years with, uh, you know, failure of of, the, of those electronic systems. So for me, the trust just isn't there yet. And given the fact that they're still heavier and more expensive, uh, you know, I just I'm just not there yet. I, that's not to say that, that could that, that might be where all the technology ends up. But at this point, I, I'd rather go with the lighter, more reliable system in my mind. And and that. And that's not to say that things like travel aren't, you know, an issue. Um, you know, for me, there are workarounds that are that, that that are still very feasible. You know, even if you add an extra canister to your kit, your airbag, your gas system is still less expensive than an electronic system. Um, and then again, oftentimes I'm working in a in a professional setting when I'm wearing the airbag, and I do have access to multiple canisters. You know. With the recent surge in the popularity of backcountry skiing and snowboarding, how do you see the role of airbags in the safety system evolving? I know we talked a little bit about this with the ski patrol at Jackson Hole, but do you think that in the future, airbags might be considered required equipment, sort of like beacon, shovel, and probe are today? Well, everywhere I work, they already are. So that's been my norm for a long time now. Um, you're required to wear them if you're a ski patrolman in Jackson, if you're a guide in Jackson. You know, you're not necessarily required to use them if you're maybe guiding for eczema, Jackson, or mountain guides in the park. But I'd say, you know, a large enough uh, number of people are using them. But it, it, it just around here, it just is the norm. And the same is true working as a, I work up as a ski guide in, in Valdez. And uh, I don't think there's a single guide working up there that hasn't been using an airbag regularly for many years now. So, I mean, to me, we're already there. What about um? What about your clients? What what percentage of clients do you do you see with airbags, or do you require airbags of your clients? Uh, you know, again, everybody needs to. You know, the industry needs to be aware that 
this that we're in this transitional period and and there's going to be there's not going to be uh necessarily a unified party line uh that happens all at the same time uh and it is interesting that you know for example jacksonville mountain resort, requ- resort requires that all of their employees wear airbags but they do not require their clients to wear airbags uh and i guess that's a fear of osha um, I don't think any, whoever's making that rule is probably making the rule based on, you know, protecting the workers and they're not, you know, and since, you know, the, the entire industry hasn't gone the, the route yet of requiring all clients to wear them, they have not uh, led that charge. Uh, and I think the same is true throughout the heli ski industry. Unfortunately, with the heli ski industry, a lot of decisions are made based on weight because everything with helicopters is, uh, very much affected by weight. So that industry, I think, has been uh, a little slower than some to mandate that guests wear them. Although, again, it, 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 at least at Valley's Heli Ski Guides, we just uh, include them uh, free of charge to all of the clients. And as soon as we started doing that, we, I don't think we've ever had anybody that opted out of using it. So... This next question sounds kind of like a gotcha question, but I'm only asking it because um, we recently did, and listeners of Gear 30, I'm sure you've all heard this, a podcast with BCA's Bruce Edgerly talking kind of about avalanche transceiver technology and um, safety and some rescue stuff as well. And this question came up in my conversation with Bruce, and I wanted to um, get your take on it as well, Doug. Um, if you were forced to take either an airbag or a beacon, either or, not not both, for for you know your general adventures in the backcountry, which would you choose? Well, I guess I don't really consider it a gotcha question. I mean, I'm again try to be very aware of the fact that uh, I, I'm just as human as as anybody, and I, and and uh, for me, all of this has been an evolution as well, and so there's never been a ski day I've gone out without my beacon and there are ski days I've gone out without my airbag. So that's just, that, that speaks for itself. Um, but I do think that it's an interesting topic to explore because it would obviously be better just not to be buried in the avalanche at all than to be buried and found. But I think culturally, again, you know, we've already accepted and, and normalized the beacon. So there's never a day I'll go out without that, but maybe you know, on a spring day in early June in the Tetons, I might, you know, not have my airbag. So I think that just speaks speaks to itself. Hmm. Yeah, curious. In the Beacon conversation, Bruce picked that the airbag, and in the airbag conversation, you're picking the Beacon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, I think that the goal should be that uh, you use any and everything at your disposal and that hopefully the manufacturers can make those things as user friendly as possible so that nobody's ever trying to make that decision based on weight or comfort or anything like that. And that's definitely Manu's goal is to, you know, make the airbag as light and as comfortable as possible so that you never really feel like it's that big of a deal for that to just be an everyday part of your kit. Well, yeah, and I hope I hope that people wouldn't be asking themselves this question. It seems it's a bit of a ridiculous question, but I think more so it speaks to like your general belief on the safety of the two different systems. You know, like which one you think would be more reliable, or you'd feel more comfortable with using as a safety net. So um, I think it's just a 
curious to get different perspectives on it. I think it speaks to the fact that uh, it that there's a lot of dramatic stories about airbags saving people's lives, um, but at the same time, I know people who have died in avalanches, and when they were uncovered, the beacons were broken because of traumatic events on the way down. And I know people that have died in avalanches because their airbags were torn off their body. I know people that were caught in avalanches just within the last two months where the balloons were torn from the airbags. Uh, So I think it's kind of a tempting question to play with and it, it, it's, it's kind of fun. It brings up some interesting topics, but in the end, I think that most of us would argue that uh, there's just no reason not to use all of the technology that's out there. Um, you know, you want good tires on your car and you're still going to wear your seatbelt and you want anti-lock brakes. I mean, I, you know, if, 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 uh, if you can afford to get a car that has all those things, you're going to get a car that has all those things. Yeah, absolutely. For those for those with the resources, I think it's hard to hard to justify not using an airbag. Yeah, and now the, I mean, with the prices have come down a lot, and just the, the the number of them out there, there's it's it you know it's not unreasonable to find an airbag used that you could pick up, or uh, you know, and then obviously when you compare uh, how much we're all willing to spend on skis and boots and bindings, suddenly the airbag doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I, I, you know, you're probably going to get 10 years out of an airbag before you really start to feel like you need to upgrade. Whereas I think, you know, there's an awful lot of people that are willing to spend $700 on a pair of skis every year. Switching gears to general, general backcountry safety. In your experience, what are the most important things backcountry users can do to increase their level of safety? And this, I'm, I'm trying to get it like the, the average backcountry user, you know, the guy who's going to go ski touring for, for powder midwinter, maybe try and ski a ski, ski from a peak in, in the springtime, something like that. I would have to say that at least for myself and, and, you know, uh, you know, t- take technology out of the equation. Uh, one of the number one things that has increased my safety in the backcountry over the years has been picking good partners. And I think it, this all ties back into that risk homeostasis thing. You know, the, 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 the real bottom line with the risk homeostasis concept is that we make errors in judgment. And that is true regardless of our level of experience or education. And so speaking to that, you know, one of the best things that I've ever been when I look back at my ski career, the best thing I've ever done is had the uh, advantage of having a lot of really good partners so that there's always good checks and balances within the team of people that are out skiing. And that also allows, you know, for a balance in the risk tolerance of the group. I know that I have a high risk tolerance um, and that I always have. So, you know, and I, and I and I probably would not have chosen to, to work as a heli ski guide in Alaska for 15 years if I didn't have a relatively high risk tolerance. Um, but when I'm when I'm out on a day to day ski tour with friends, I think those quality partners are one of the best things that I've ever done to to uh, add balance to the decision making. Yeah, I think I think that's an absolutely excellent answer. Honestly, I wrote this question and I was not thinking along those lines and 
when you said that, I just found myself like, yeah, nodding along exactly. Like that's that has been that has been a, a huge factor in, in my personal backcountry um, travels as well. I was just going to say the same. The same is 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 true when I look at all of my the professional settings I work for. If I if I uh, when I'm when I'm working in Valdez at Valdez High Ski Guides with 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 a team of very experienced people that I've worked with for over ten years, it's like the way that team. Uh, works to control each other's impulses and double check each other. Uh, it's, it's really the, the, the single most important thing that, that that team does to be able to provide that product, you know, in a reasonably safe manner. It, you know, that, that team is more important than any piece of technology. Maybe pivoting away from airbags and avalanche technology and safety a bit and kind of give you a chance to talk a little bit about, about your experiences in the mountains First, what's what what's been your your favorite guiding experience that that you've been able to to have? Uh, it, it might be a little bit of a cop out of a, of, a, of an answer, but hands down, the the best guiding experiences I've ever had are, are in places that are new to me. Um, a couple of years ago, I did a ski touring trip to Morocco where we had amazing snow conditions, uh, and I think everybody's expectations were very low. Um, but it was a great group of people in an amazing uh, mountain range and an amazing culture, and just everything about it was new. And, and uh, I think time and again, going to new places is always the most rewarding. Cool. Wow, Morocco. That's wild. Yeah, we actually had amazing powder skiing while we were there. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I mean, I guess the, the Atlas get overshadowed by, by the Alps so close by, but I uh, never really thought of skiing there. Yeah, they you know they can they, they can certainly have some really dry years, um, but Chris Erickson, uh, who's an American guide based out of Chamonix in, in Morocco, uh, turned me on to some great ski tours that you could do there, and, and we also we definitely got really lucky with the snow conditions. Oh, that's awesome! Super cool. So um, I was reading I was reading your website a bit before this before this call and. Read a read read the little blurb you have on ski descents of the Grand. Um, I actually I actually was able to to ski the Grand last spring, and I mean it was an amazing experience. But when it comes to to guiding a client up a up a peak that's you know so exposed, you know like with huge fall hazard, especially at the top um, in the Ford Couloir, like how do you mitigate risk for that client in a situation like that? Well, the number one way is to. Uh not go up there with a client that you don't have extreme confidence in. I've never skied the Grand with somebody that I hadn't skied a lot with before in other places where you might have been skiing in exposed terrain like Valdez. But, you know, in my mind, if the conditions are reasonable and the skiers are willing to ski well, well, well within their ability level, even if that means only skiing two or three turns at a time before stopping, uh, then there's, you know, that, that, that's the number one thing you're doing to mitigate the risk. And of course you use some belayed skiing as you get closer to the cliff edge, uh, or if, uh, which is hopefully not the case, if you get there and the conditions are much, much worse than you expected. Um, I've never really had that happen, but I, if it did, then I would use, employ a lot more rope skiing. Uh, but rope skiing is not a particularly fun thing to do. <laughs> no, um, no, it's not. So, you know, again, hopefully if you've picked a time to go where the conditions are reasonably good, um, 
you know, the, and, and the skiers are skiing in control, then there's, you know, usually no reason that where you're doing belayed skiing all the way down the run. Uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. Doug, thanks for, thanks for taking the time. I, I know I personally learned a lot and, 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 and got a lot out of this. So thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, hope you have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying these episodes, we'd very much appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or some feedback in iTunes and also spread the word to your gearhead friends. Thanks, everybody. Be safe out there and we'll talk to you next week.